Good morning, you all. It is my joy to be here. I was just thinking during that music. I, I love being together on a Sunday morning with God's family. And uh, I especially like being here with you all. This feels um, like instead of being your guest, I feel like your most absent family member. So just grateful to be here with you all. And to kick off this Christmas invitation series, I know I just want to draw attention if you haven't seen it to the giving tree that's out, um, out there by the coffee. It's an opportunity for you to share your treasure with people here, near, and far. And I just want to encourage you that there's no gift too small. God's been using small gifts for a long time to do big things, right? He used a boy's lunch. He used a widow's mite. He used five stones. He used a jawbone. He's used a cup of water. He's used all kinds of things to accomplish his goals. He's just looking for us to be willing and available to be a vessel for that. And I think my favorite, one of my favorite stories about a small gift that God used to make a big difference was I was, it was a Christmas season and I was in Mexico, my family and I lived there for 15 years as missionaries. And we had a team of people visiting from Indiana and I was giving them a little talk about generosity and how God might want to use the things that they have in their hands to impact a world out there that still needs to know who he is. And I was saying to them, Think about what you're good at. Like, what kinds of things are you good at? And ask how God could use what you're good at for the kingdom. And there was a 10-year-old boy sitting in the front row who did not want to be there. And he interrupted me, raised his hand, and said, I'm not really good at anything. Can I go, please? And uh, I said, uh, I have four teenage... I had four sons, and so he was not intimidating me. And I said, um, I'm sure you're good at something. I'm sure you have something in your hand that you can give to the Lord. I'm sure that he's gifted you in some way. You can give your gift back to him. And he's like, I'm really, I'm not very good at anything. And I said, come on, what, you've got to be good at something. And he looked at me, he goes, Xbox. I was like, okay, we'll ask God what he might do with your Xbox. And he stayed and listened for the rest of my time together with him. And then I, he went back to Indiana and I lost track of him. But just a few weeks after that, the Mason, Ohio back-to-back office got a letter from him that he had written to us with a uh, $410 cashier's check inside. He had gone back to his elementary school and hosted an Xbox tournament that had a $10 entry fee and he'd gotten some little businesses to donate prizes and there were 41 participants. So he wrote me this letter about exactly where he wanted his $410 to be spent and at the bottom of it he said, I guess God can use an Xbox after all. And that... I think if God can use a 10-year-old and an Xbox, there is no telling what he can do in a room full of like this with the talents and treasure and opportunities and giftings he's given you. Let's advance the kingdom in a world that still needs to know him. That really is the Christmas invitation. But we'll be spending our time this morning continuing in the book of Luke. We'll be in the first five verses of chapter 14. You can read along with me that first verse. It says, now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And there's lots of details in this verse. First of all, lots of Jesus's ministry happened around meals. Think about wedding ceremonies and last suppers and meals with Mary and Martha and meals with Mary Magdalene. He often, Jesus often centered his, his ministry around meals, which makes sense to me. Because when we sit down to share a meal with someone, we listen, we connect, we engage, we exchange, we There's like a moment where we send a message to whomever it is we're sitting with, you're important to me. I hope last week at Thanksgiving you had a chance to sit and connect and listen and engage with the people in your life. But one of my favorite things about Jesus is he does not just sit and have meals with the people that are exactly like him, that tell him exactly what he wants to hear. 
But he sits down and has meals regularly with people that don't have any idea who he is and don't have any desire to understand and who actually, in this particular case, are looking to catch him doing the wrong thing. It says the verb that he says when it talks about they were watching him closely, that verb in the Greek is peritero, which is, peritero means like watching with the intent to catch someone at something, which is different than the verb to watch, which means to look at something with curiosity. We know the difference, right? I, I just mentioned, uh, we have 10 children, but the youngest four of those 10 are currently teenage boys. So I know what it looks like to watch them with curiosity. That's like, are you really going to eat that entire pizza? Like, you know, I'm just kind of like, wow, I can't believe you, you're capable of that. And then the other kind of watching them with the intent of catching them is when my eyes are a little squinted and my head's kind of cocked and I'm thinking, do you really think you're going to jump off that balcony? You know, like I, I, I'm watching them anticipating that what they're about to do, I don't want them to do and I'm going to catch them in the act. That's the kind of verb that they use in this particular passage. These Pharisees invited Jesus to a meal. His heart was listen, connect, engage, exchange. Their heart was to catch him doing something wrong. But I love that even in the midst of him knowing the trap they were setting for him, that he operated in total freedom. That's the way God works. Jesus demonstrates for us during the years of his ministry that he can be free no matter where he is, no matter who's around him and no matter what they're saying, he has that freedom. He actually is freedom. It's a confidence. And as his children, he gives that confidence right back to us. We have that same kind of confidence to do exactly what God wants us to, no matter where it is that we find ourselves. That that confidence comes, that freedom comes when we spend time with and alongside that freedom or confidence giver. There's this passage in Exodus 33:11. I like it a lot. It's this passage where it talks about Moses walking into some place called the tent of the meeting. And the tent of the meeting is a place where it says that the Lord talked to Moses face to face as one would a friend. And that verse gets a lot of attention because of that particular passage because it's so fascinating to think about that we could be in a place where the king of the universe wants to talk to us face to face as one would a friend. In the time of Moses, he had to go into a geographical spot where Jesus, where, where God was located. But today, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can be anywhere we want to and have the tent of the meeting. We can have a tent of the meeting in our car, and we can have a tent of the meeting in the middle of a crowd, and we can be in the tent of the meeting while we're exercising or at work or at a table with someone that we don't really want to be at. Like, we can have that experience where we're face-to-face with God in the midst of whatever storyline we find ourselves in. That passage gets a lot of attention because of that face-to-face concept, but the part I like the best is the part that comes after it. It says, Moses goes into the tent of the meeting where he meets with the Lord face-to-face as one would a friend, and then he goes back down the mountain so he can deliver to his people, to God's people, the message God had just given him. But it goes on to say, but Joshua, the young son of Nun, followed Moses into the tent and didn't leave. He stayed there. He was so captivated by what it looked like to be face-to-face with the Lord, he, he didn't want to leave. And if you turn your Bibles a couple books later, you read all the incredible storylines, the, the confidence that God gave Joshua to do things like march around a city seven times before the walls came down or go with his buddy Caleb into a land like a spy. Like God gave Joshua all this incredible freedom and confidence to do exactly what he called him to do. And I would argue, I don't think he would have had that if he hadn't spent that face-to-face time as one would the friend. God, Jesus is setting something up for us in this story. He, he, 
He, he on purpose visited them on the Sabbath. He on purpose visited the Pharisees. He on purpose is going to do what he's about to do. Like he doesn't tell stories accidentally. He is the living gospel. He is telling us, if you want to know and see what the good news is, watch me. I am the good news. Follow me, imitate me. In fact, Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians this verse about how we are living letters, that we, we may be the only gospel that somebody sees, that God writes his truth right onto our hearts so that we can live the gospel out in front of other people who might not have any other access to it. It says, you are the epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Wherever we go, whatever table we find ourselves in, wherever we listen and connect and exchange and engage, we have to keep in mind, as Jesus was in this very table, that, they, that somebody who didn't know the good news was maybe interacting with the good news for the very first time. And we, ha- we have to be mindful of it. I was speaking uh, about a month or so ago somewhere, and I had made arrangements with the people who were organizing the event that when I was all done speaking, I was going to go out behind the stage and out the door and go straight um, and leave the premises right away. I had another commitment I had to go to. So I finished talking and I walked out the back door and when I stepped outside, it was dark. There was no lights in the back of the building. And so I just took a minute to kind of orient myself in the dark to remember which direction is my car parked. And as I was standing out there in the dark, the door opened behind me and I couldn't see who it was, but I heard a voice say out, Mrs. G, is that you? And as soon as I heard her voice, I had this like moment like this tent of the meeting kind of moment with the Lord where he, he put this name in my head and I went, Bionni Brionis, is that you? 25 years ago, I was an ESL teacher in the Sycamore School District and I taught specifically in the Sims Elementary Building. And Bionni Brionis was a six-year-old first grader whose first language was not English and who was one of my favorite students. I hadn't heard her voice in over 25 years. I should not have recognized her adult woman's voice. As soon as the Lord put that name in my heart, I knew he did it as a gift to her and to me. And I spun around when I said her name and she started crying because she's like, I didn't even think you'd remember me, let alone would you recognize me? And I said, Bionni, tell me what's going on. God has something for us in this moment. Tell me, like, how have you been? She went on to tell me a little bit about her life and told me that she had come to know the Lord here in Cincinnati through a Pentecostal church. And she's like, the first time they laid hands on me and prayed over tongues, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is what Mrs. G used to do. And I, was, I said, well, I was actually just speaking in English, but I'm glad you understand what it, what it was. I used to pray over my students when they left my room. They couldn't tell on me because they didn't speak English. So I would pray over them before they left. <laughs> I would ask them, I would ask God to protect them and provide for them and to have, find favor with their teachers and to grant them understanding of the language. And we would have these like little moments where they just knew to stand still and listen while I prayed over them and then they left my room. That, that, that experience, the next time she went into the tent of the meeting, this time of her own volition, she remembered what it felt like to be in the presence of God, but she didn't even know what it was. I said, Bianni, do you understand that God has been in pursuit for you, of you for more than two decades, that he loves you. It goes on in that passage to say at that table, that Pharisee table on Sabbath where they're eating bread, that behold, there was a certain man before him, before Jesus, who had dropsy. 
So dropsy really means inflammation of the face with water. That's literally what it means in Greek. If you had dropsy, you had a very bloated face. It was obvious immediately to the, to the eye that there was something wrong. There was something physically wrong. This is where the trap begins to get laid for Jesus because, of course, it is Sabbath and there were laws saying that on the Sabbath they couldn't do things like heal. And I think when Jesus looked around that table, he saw more healing that needed to happen than just dropsy. Sometimes all we see are physical ailments. But the Lord understands all that's going on in our hearts. He understands the scars that can be seen and the scars that can't be seen. In fact, with my work with orphans and vulnerable children, most of the scars I, that I encounter in the children that we serve, you can't, you can't recognize from just seeing them. But God sees every one of them. And he has always had more than one mission going on at a time. He saw that man with dropsy. And I know he knew in his heart what he was about to do. But he was also trying to heal at the same time the broken thinking of the Pharisees who set the trap. That when God does his good news, good work in the midst of us, that he has multifacets, places in ways all around of people that are being impacted. And sometimes today what he asks us for is he asks that we would be our partner with him in that kind of healing. That when we sat at tables with people and we listen and engage and exchange and connect, that we not only look for people who have the physical need of God's healing touch, but that we'd have our eyes trained so we could partner with him to be part of the healing of people who might need encouragement or comfort or God's wisdom or discernment or the gift of peace, things that he wants to give us so that we may give them away. Todd and I adopted um, a teenage boy several years ago. His name's Tyler. And when you uh, impart in an international adoption, there's no like due date. You don't know exactly when they're going to come home. You have a couple of years most of the time for that process to unfold. And so you have to keep making plans for life like you always do. And so we had made a family vacation plan And we had no idea that 30 days before that vacation, Tyler would come home to live with us here in Cincinnati. So I'm just saying that all to say that it's not really a good idea to take your brand new child who's a teenager on a vacation without predictable routine and where you have no lifelines. But off we went on vacation a month after Tyler got here. And we went to Colorado, which he'd never been to Colorado. So every day was full of new experiences. He was riding horses for the first time and he was fishing in rivers for the first time and climbing mountains for the first time. And most of the week actually went really well. It was without incident. I was surprised. But the very last night, the boys were all playing this big game of Monopoly. And they were trading properties and pass and go and taxing each other. And it was getting kind of rowdy. And he didn't understand all the language. And as one little incident happened and they were laughing, he took it as they were laughing at him. They weren't laughing at him, but he didn't understand. And he was overtired and overstimulated and the whole thing fell apart. And he began to get upset and then cry. And so he and I, I just excused him from the table and we went to his room. I knew he was exhausted from that week. And I just helped him get lay down. And I I said, let's just go to bed tonight. Tomorrow is a new day. And so I was positive when I walked out of the room, he'd be asleep in two minutes, but um, not my best mom moment. An hour later, one of my sons came upstairs. He's like, Hey, you know, Tyler's down there still crying, right? In his bed. And I was like, I did not know that. So I went down to his room to see what was going on. And when you, when you begin to cry about an incident, what can happen in our hearts and our brains is he began to grieve things that had nothing to do with monopoly, right? He began to grieve 
um, his life and his transition and all kinds of things. And so me telling him, like, hey, next time you can buy a hotel for Park Place wasn't going to solve the problem. Like, this was about something now way bigger. And so the only thing I could do was be there with him. And I was just sat there with him and rubbed his back and told him all the things that were true. Like, we love you and we're not going anywhere and we came for you and it's going to be okay. And I just repeated all those words. I love you and I'm not leaving and, until he finally calmed down and fell asleep. The next day on our way home, we were at the airport and my husband um, circled everybody up and he made everybody tell us what our favorite moment of vacation was. And all the rest of my children all named the kinds of things that we spent money on, right? Activities that it cost us something. And we were all very excited to hear what Tyler was going to say because every single day and every single activity we did was brand new to him. So it was like, what's he going to say was his favorite? Did he like catching that fish better? Did he like riding a chairlift better? Like what, what did he like? And so when it was his turn, Todd said, Tyler, what was your favorite moment of the week? And he goes, oh, that's easy. My favorite moment of the week is when mom told me how much she loved me last night. And I realized in that moment, my gosh, the opportunity we have on a daily basis to just say the things that are true to the people that are sitting around our dinner tables, to the people that we make a choice to engage and exchange and connect and listen to. God wants to open up the opportunity for his love and mercy and kindness and goodness to come through us to the people that he loves. It goes on to say in verse three, so they're at Sabbath. They're eating bread. They're watching them closely. There's a guy there with dropsy. Jesus answers, speaking to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful? Is it okay, do you think, for us to heal on the Sabbath? And in that moment, when he asked that question, he took the weapon they were trying to use on him, and he turned it around and used it on them. Because the truth of the matter is, everybody knew they couldn't heal anybody. They were incapable of healing, and immediately he was establishing himself as the healer. And then if they said, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, they look like they're lawless. And if they say, no, it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath, then they look heartless. And Jesus, he cut through all, all of that confusion and all of that nuance and all of that complication like he does in every single storyline with a simple appeal to love. If you ever find yourself in a story where it feels like you're not exactly sure what's the right response here, what should I do? What, what? What is God requiring of me? What, 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 do I take my step to the left or the right, Isaiah would say. Like, like, what do I do? Whenever you find yourself in any kind of circumstance or relational quandary or spiritual conundrum, always ask yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus would do? would take the route through it by way of love. He always appeals to love. It clarifies our plan of action. And so... As I was studying this, I was trying to think of a real life example of a moment when I found myself in a quandary and I wanted, and I wasn't sure exactly like what is the right thing to do? Not like this is the right thing to do and I just don't want to do it, but like I'm not actually sure what the right thing to do is. How did I use, how can we apply once one story in my life when I have applied God's law of love to that, that kind of circumstance? And I thought of a pretty personal one. So this isn't like something I like go around and share on the pulpit very often, but this again feels a bit like my living room and you all like my extended family. So I'll just tell you the truth. Todd and I were living in Mexico and um, my daughter was a Mexican gymnast, which meant if you have ever had a child compete at a national level in athletics, it's like, you know, consumes your whole life. So she was at the gym all the time, um, every night. And our family routine was that I would take her to the gym in the afternoon and my husband would pick her up from the gym in the evening. And also, if you've ever been involved in athletics of any kind, there's usually, kind of, especially I'm speaking to you women, there's kind of like a 
like a team mom kind of club, you know, like the people that are like, you know what I'm talking about, like that's like their thing. And the gymnastics moms were precious and kind and, and were never unkind to me. But I was on the outside of that. I was a foreigner. I, I was different than them. And so they would be kind to me, but really I was not a part of their social circle. And I, it was okay with me. I became friends with someone else who had been kind of pushed out of that circle, social circle. She was um, pushed out because the women, frankly, were just intimidated by her. She was a very beautiful woman. She was a model in our city, and her image was on a bunch of billboards around town. And I think they just weren't uncomfortable around her, so they pushed her out. They pushed me out. We found each other and became friends. And one um, night, Todd came home from picking up our daughter, Emma, from gymnastics, and he said, your friend is kind of making me a little bit uncomfortable. She says things I'm not really sure how to take, and I don't think that it's appropriate, and I just, I'm, I'm just registering it with you. And I was like, you think my friend is into you? Oh, she's definitely not into you. Don't worry, honey. That, that's not that true. <laughs> Which he was mildly offended. And then uh, a few weeks later, it was Valentine's Day. And he came home and he said, she made me a card, Beth. Which Valentine's Day in Spanish is called the Day of Friendship and Love. And I said, oh, it's the Dia de Amor y Amistad. You're her friend. She doesn't have that many friends. Of course she made you a card. She knew she was going to see you. It's, it's nothing, I promise. He's like, I don't know. It doesn't feel like nothing. I'm like, I promise she's not into you. <laughs> and then uh, a few weeks later, she had learned what his routine was. And usually before he would go to the gym, he would go to a nearby hardware store to buy whatever we needed um, that day for the orphanages. And so she followed him into the parking lot of that, uh, of that hardware store. And when he got out of the car, she made it very clear and no uncertain terms what it is that she wanted to do and how it was that she was dressed underneath her jacket. And so that man got in that car and turned around and drove straight home. He totally forgot my daughter at the gym. He just <laughs> drove straight home. <laughs> walked in the door and told me what was going on and I was like okay I, I don't know what to do I don't even know what the right thing to do is I, I, I don't know I mean I, I don't know what to do I, I, we got to go back and get him I know that much but beyond that do you go do I go do we go together do we talk to her do you not talk to her like like what is the way like what what is God's way and after we talked about it for a minute and prayed I said to him I think we need to go back together and I think I need to talk to her and he was like, oh, <laughs> you want to talk to her? Like, what are you going to say? And I said, I, I think I'll know it when I get there. And he's like, you're, you're not going to hit her or anything, right? And I was like, of course I'm not going to hit her. We pull up into the gym and we both get out of the car together. And she was immediately taken back by the fact that we were together there. And as I walked up to her, she was very humiliated by her actions. And I said to her, oh, you know what? It doesn't actually matter how shiny of an apple that you are and how unbelievable of a physical experience that you are offering to him. What happens inside of my marriage is a covenant. And what, what connects to Todd and I is more than just physical. That act for us is emotional and it's spiritual. And no matter what it is that you were offering him, it can't hold a candle to what it is that we experience inside this spiritual covenant, this God designed and ordained, this, this, this space that he makes for two people to become one. Like that's why it's, that, that's why you got rejection because God has actually put together this marriage and nothing can compare to what God has put together. And she looked at me for a moment like, what are you talking about? And I said, do you know, do you know what I mean when I say that God has put us together and two, when we're together, two people become one and that we have a spiritual connection as well as a physical connection as well as emotional connection. Do you understand what I'm talking about? She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
And I took a deep breath and I realized the way through this path, the way in this conversation, what God was requiring from me, because I may be the only epistle of good news she's going to ever read, I needed to share with her the truth of the gospel. And I took a deep breath and I gave her the basics of the gospel. Like this, this is what God was asking. Because the Bible talks about there's three kinds of love. And one of the kinds of love in the New Testament is called agape love. And agape has this really long definition in the Greek. But the part of that definition I like the best is that agape love is compelled to act. It's, it cannot stop itself. It has to act on behalf of that which is in front of them. And that, that, that's, Jesus had a compelled to act love for us. That's what took him to a cross. That's what caused him to leave 99 in order to go for a one. Like there was a compelled to act moment love in that moment that was greater than any emotions I might have been having or any disappointment that I just probably lost a friend or any, any anything. I was feeling this compelled to act kind of love that came through me because God said to me, I want to partner with you. I want you to sit at a table where someone might be trying to catch you in something that's not okay. I want you to exchange and connect and listen and engage with people that are nothing like us so that we can tell them what this good story is. And here's what happened. She couldn't talk afterwards. She was literally silent. And that's what happens in the the next verse of this passage. It says, when posed with this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees remained silent. There is no response. There is no response to that. So Jesus took him, the man with dropsy. He healed him and he let him go. And I think my favorite part about that is that there was no like hocus pocus. Like Jesus is like, you've got dropsy, come over here. I am the healer. I will heal you. Now go and tell everyone what it is that I have done to you. Like, I, 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 it's a gift that he gave that man with dropsy and he did it without fanfare, without ceremony. He will, he loves the one. There's a, there's a passage in Mark chapter five that this passage in Luke 14 reminds me of. In Mark chapter five, well, actually at the end of four, Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of his disciples and he looks across the Sea of Galilee to this, this like cliff on the top of the other side. There's a town up there called the Decapolis. And he says, I want us to go over there to that town of Decapolis. And the disciples agree to do it, but they might have been hesitant because we now know, thanks to archaeologists, that the people up there in the Decapolis, they were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. So you can imagine what their 850 services were like, right? (laughs) And they would have had to, in order to get to that Decapolis, they would have had to cross over this great big body of water, which in the first century Jews considered large bodies of water metaphorical for the abyss. So they probably didn't want to cross that scary abyss in order to go to a place that nobody wanted them there. But they obey just as we are to obey every time God asks us of the same. They get halfway across that abyss. It did to them exactly what it does to us when we say yes. It kicked itself up in their face like a storm. Jesus taught those disciples and all of us that want to read Mark 5 what to do when the abyss kicks itself up in the storm. He silenced it with the words out of his mouth. He gets to the other side of the shore and he's met there by a man named Legion. He was demon possessed. He had been chained to a graveyard even though he was alive. The people in his life considered him so cast aside and unworthy and unimportant that they chained him to a graveyard, but he broke from those chains and he met Jesus. Jesus looked at him right away, knew exactly what was going on. He looked um, to the side, there were 2,000 pigs. We now know, thanks to archaeologists, that those guys were sacrificing pigs on those altars to the gods of fertility and wine. So Jesus cast those demons into those pigs. Those pigs went flying off that cliff into the Sea of Galilee and the man that was left, now free, Now, much like that man with dropsy, now healed, looked at Jesus and he begged to go with him. 
It says in Mark 5, as Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him. He said and said, go home to your own people. These are the people that change you up. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. If you... If that's all I knew about Jesus, that he's the kind of guy that crosses an abyss, that he's the kind of guy that did all of that craziness for one person and not even the most important person, but the least important person, that is enough of the story for me, but go home and learn more about the Decapolis. They, they later excavated some plaques from Christian physicians who were martyred for giving their services to the poor that date back to the first century. So somebody heard Legion's testimony so compellingly they gave their life for it that first century. The year 400 AD, a man named the Bishop of Decapolis penned something called the Nicene Creed. That's going to be said today in seven different continents. Jesus sees the individual. And when he does, when he engages and listens and exchanges and does his good work, he always has more than one mission at a time. He did that good news because he wanted the disciples to learn you can cross an abyss and no storm can stop you. He, he did it on behalf of that man so he would be free from that which had been torturing him. He did it for the people that would later hear the gospel message from him and understand the good news because it was written like an epistle on the heart of that man who was free. When Jesus does his good work, he's got all kinds of goodness planned from it. That some Horizon women came on a mission trip on a global serving team with back-to-back ministries uh, a couple of Christmases ago. And on what, what I asked them to do is I had gone around and asked all the kids in the orphanages exactly what they wanted for Christmas. And then I sent that list here to the elves that, that attend this church. And I asked them to buy things like Barbie backpacks and Justin Bieber pillowcases. And they went and bought everything. And then they traveled to Mexico where we were going to wrap them all up and deliver them to the kids. And I told them that there are lots of times where kids get dropped off during the holiday season. So let's, let's plan on an extra 10 to 15 gifts in, in particular genders and age ranges so that if ki- new kids come, we can match them as best as we can with the gift that you bring from the U.S. And so we had a, a bunch of extra gifts that they brought with them. And so the day came and we were organizing and we were calling out names and making sure that the wish list matched with a gift that bought and then we were wrapping them and labeling them and we looked like a little Santa's workshop. And then we got to the list of kids who had been dropped off since I had sent my list to Cincinnati and there were 17 kids that had been dropped off. And so we were just looking at the table of extra gifts and we were going to do the best we could to match those. And so the first child wanted um, something Barbie related, a, a bag of some sort, and there was a Barbie backpack and it was totally perfect. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. She's going to get just what she wanted. And we just, the few of us that were working on it, like wrapped it up and stuck it away. And then the next person wanted a Justin Bieber, um, actually t-shirt. And somebody had bought a Justin Bieber t-shirt in the right size 12. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe we have exactly what he wants. That is going to be perfect. And we wrapped it up and put it away. And name by name and request by request, we were matching exactly what these new kids wanted with things that people had brought unassigned. And as, as every gift that we found, we were getting kind of louder and louder, our little team. And we began to attract the attention of the other women who were with us. And, and like we were like at gift 10 and 11 and 12. And it was like oh my gosh, we have roller skates. And like, oh my gosh, we have, you know, a dump truck with big wheels. And like, it was, we were getting excited and louder and louder. And I began to have this private conversation with the Lord. Like, hey, listen, if we get near the end and it doesn't all work out, 
you have been unbelievable. I'm going to take this list to Walmart. We'll finish it together. We'll partner for this good work. Like, no worries. I was beginning to practice how I was going to frame it all for the women if there was some disappointment that it didn't all happen perfectly. Like, can you believe how good God is? He's the giver of all good gifts. I was getting all worked up for it. We get down to the very last gift. And I read the the name and then it said um, Hot Wheel Track. I was like, oh gosh, we all knew the table very well at this point. There was definitely no Hot Wheel Track on on that table. In fact, it, that's such a large gift, nobody would have brought that in their suitcase. And I was, I was just saying to him, hey, you know what? We are going to go make sure that this Hot Wheel track happens. I'm going to go into town and find a Hot Wheel track. This is unbelievable. Can you believe how good God is? And I'm like, you know, rounding up. And I could hear this woman starts sobbing. She was just sobbing. And so I was like, hey, it's okay. God is still good. I promise. Like, this is still so unbelievable. Can you believe all that we witnessed in the last hour? She's just crying. She grabs someone and takes them into the dorm room where they were sleeping. And she comes out and she says, tells us what most of us already knew. She had an adult daughter with a brain injury. And she said, I don't usually take her with me on errands, but the day that I went shopping for these Christmas gifts, I took her with me. I didn't have a choice. And she got real fixated on this gift that she had in her hands. She's like, I told her, honey, this isn't on my list and it's too big for me to take to Mexico, but it's actually less work for me to just buy what she wanted me to buy than it was for me to try to explain to her why we weren't going to take this gift with me. So I went ahead and bought this this Hot Wheel track. And she said, but when I was packing, she was like, why is a Hot Wheel track not in your back, in your suitcase? And so she's like, again, it was just easier to stick that thing in my suitcase and bring it here. But the day we were unpacking a couple days ago, I was kind of embarrassed to buy the size of it and that nobody asked me to do it. So I just left it in my suitcase under my bed. And when she pulled it out, I was like, you've got to be kidding me that the king of the universe cares so much about a child that's in an orphanage experiencing Christmas that he decided to motivate someone a whole country away. And he had more than one mission at a time. He had a message for that adult woman with with her brain injury. She had a message for that mother. You have no idea. He had a message for that child that I see every need in here, every want that you have. And he had a message for all of us that were watching it. He is a God of individuals. He listens and hears and heals and engages with individuals. Like this is, if we're going to engage in this Christmas season in a way that models who he is, we'll hold on to his hand, we'll spend time with the tent of the meeting, then we'll go out and be with people that are nothing like us and do everything we can to be the epistle of Christ that he's written on us because this is the gospel story. This, this is, he goes on to say at the end of that story, he answers them, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? You like your animal and you take care of your animal? How much more would we take care of a person made in God's image here who is suffering. His logic is simple and he's telling them, you want to know what the good news is? I am the good news. I am a connector. I'm a saver. My answer is always love. I am engaged with you. I will heal you. This is the Christmas invitation. About um, a year ago, back to back, had its 20th anniversary and this woman came to the anniversary and she said to me, Um, do you remember me? And I'm like, remind me when I've seen you. And she said, well, 15 years ago, I came to Mexico when I was 13 years old. And I said, okay, well, you've changed a lot since then. And she said, you taught about James 1.27, how the Bible says we should take care of widows and orphans in their distress. And she said, I heard that as a 13-year-old and thought to myself, I am going to live my life according to that truth. I'm going to change my life in that way. She said, I just had that in my heart all these years. And she said, I want you to know that today my husband and I foster in Hamilton County medically fragile infants. And she opened up her little jacket and she had this impossibly small infant hanging on her. 
And she said, I just want you to know that that decision I made 15 years ago has, is impacting my life today. And I told everybody that night, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my picture of the day today. I cannot believe that this woman is living her life in this way. This is so beautiful. And then I didn't see her again for another year, but then I saw her again last month. And I said to her, my first question was, how many babies have you had since I've last seen you? And she said, oh, actually, we spent this whole year with just that same little girl that you saw that night. In fact, we've been planning for her adoption for most of the year. And I said, oh, that's exciting. And she said, well, a few months ago, her mother began to get her life turned around and the county put in place a reunification plan. And so um, next week, she's actually going to go home. And I said, how are you doing with that? She's like, well, at first it was really hard because I thought that my mission was this baby and I was supposed to love this baby, but but the absence of this baby, I would be without this mission and I was disappointed by how the story was unfolding and then I spent some time, I mean, she didn't say this in the tent of the meeting, but this is what she did. She spent some time face-to-face with Jesus as one would a friend and he helped impart into her his heart that he loved that mama in all the same ways that she loved that baby. And he said, she said, as I began to, to sit with the Lord, he was encouraging me to reach out to that mom with the same kind of passion and drive I had for that baby. And I began to encourage that mom and text that mom and reach out to that mom and say words of affirmation to that mom and, and love on that mom and share advice with that mom. And that mom be- finally asked me this last week if I would be the godmother of that little girl. And I thought to myself, the Bible says in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son I think to myself, he's such a so lover. He, he so loves the world. I cannot believe that Jesus so loved a woman in Hamilton County in 2018. He loved her so much that he'd start a story 15 years ago in the fragile heart of a 13-year-old. So that today when she had an option of what it is she was going to do, she'd feel this agape, compelled to act kind of love going through her on his behalf, on her behalf. Like that's... That's the Christmas invitation. Would we allow stories to be written into our life? Would we open our heart? Will we spend time face-to-face with him as one would a friend? Will we invite people to our table that have no idea what it is that we're talking about? Will we make a path through the stories and circumstances and relationships of our life that look like love? Will we do that if the answer is yes? We will experience this holiday season in all the ways that he designed for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for... Thank you, thank you that you trust us with this good news, that you want to write it not on tablets of stone, but directly on the flesh and the hearts of us. We love you, we honor you, we praise you, we trust you, we want you. We, we say yes. Yes, we'll have our ears and eyes open. Yes, yes, we'll have freedom and confidence. Yes, yes, we'll partner with you in the healing of things that we can't see as well as the things that we can. Yes, Jesus. Our answer this holiday season to your invitation is yes. And I pray these things with the authority that we have as co-heirs with you, that you would release an anointing on this body and in this season. And I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.